And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. I'm here with my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, since we have another fantastic guest this week, the voice of baseball and NFL football for Fox, Joe Buck, I just wanted to check. Are you going to be able to stick around for the entire show this week as opposed to last week when you went to the beach or you went for ice cream or whatever you did in the middle of that show while I was talking to Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko all by myself? Wait, I, I, didn't I have my fifth child? I thought that's why I missed it, but I guess I that's not so. a good... Oh, no, that's right. I didn't... No. Yeah, so I, I, call, I think it was some game-related issue. Yeah, I'm going to make <laughs> it through all of this. I will make it all the way to Starkville and back. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Bring on Joe Buck. Now we're talking, uh, uh, just so you know, we did a monster download number for the show last week while you were at the beach. So I consider <laughs> this week's show to be a test of your true podcasting star power. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm feeling very shiny right now. Uh, I feel very good in the universe of Starkville. And uh, like I said, we're galactic, man. We are galactic. Yeah, we'll find out about that. All right, Doug, before we bring in Joe Buck, we have some stuff we need to talk about. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting last few days in umpiring. Let's say that. Um, I used to always tell my kids uh, like that officials, umpires, they don't decide games. That's a myth. You decide those games. If you give them a chance to decide your games, that's your fault, not their fault. But... Considering the finishes of the Phillies and Braves Sunday night and then the bizarre plunk off at City Field last Thursday, I'm thinking about revising that old parental saying of mine. Uh, why don't we start by listening to how the winning run scored in the ninth inning of Phillies Braves Sunday night? Tagging the third is Bone. Here comes a throw out of left. Play at the plate. He is safe. Review this one. Yeah, I don't know that that front foot of Bones got to the plate. Looks like it went around the plate. Here's the call. He's safe. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what you're looking for. Snitker standing on top step, waving his arms. He's just been thrown out of the game by Alfonso Marquez. 
That was a horrible review. <laughs> Our, our, our friends in Atlanta seem a little perturbed by that call, maybe because Alec Bohm scored the winning run in that game despite one minor oversight, Doug. He never touched home plate. Now, I'm the biggest proponent of replay that you know. You know that that's true. But the fact that that play got reviewed for five minutes and then they got it so wrong, does that feel like an indication to you that replay is broken? It's not broken, but you know they they have to continue to go back to the drawing board and and make adjustments. And so far, you know, under Commissioner Manfred's regime, he's not been afraid to do that. And these are the type of moments that make you go back and say, "Wait a minute, you know, this is they didn't get the call right." I understand you don't you need con- clear and convincing, but it seemed fairly clear and convincing. And the consequences of these like end plays, these these like game changing plays. Make it make the stakes so much higher. So, you know, I, I think the replay overall is is shown to you know be effective in a lot of ways. Most of the time, credit to the umpires should be given that they do get most of, they got most of the calls right before replay. This was like a, an accent to really deal with these kinds of close plays, bang bang, that you have the technology to actually look at it again. And that's part of the responsibility with it because the fans get to see it too and they, they have, they're going to have opinions. So I don't know what happened on this particular play, but you know this seemed clear and convincing that he was out and never reached the base, but uh, something, something else happened. Our friend Ken Rosenthal has a really interesting column on this uh, in The Athletic as we speak. Check that out. Five ways to fix replay. And uh, Ken and I talked about this Let's kick around a couple of these ideas. Um, <laughs> after the game Sunday night, I suggested on Twitter that one of the issues here is that when you have umpires in that replay room, sometimes they can be reluctant to over- overturn the call of one of their fellow umpires. And, you know, if you watch that play, watch the replay 75 times, what do you see? You see Lance Barrett, the plate ump, he is standing right on top of the play and called the runner safe. And I, I, I'm thinking about those umpires in New York saying, our guy was standing right there and he called him safe. We're not sure. Let's go with that. So I tweeted that this is one of the issues with the current replay system. And you know who tweeted at me was uh, our pal Eric Kratz, the longtime catcher, smart guy, funny guy. He was volunteering himself to <laughs> enter the replay room and help the umpires with this sort of thing. Now he's got, doesn't have much to do right now because he retired after last season, but this is his concept. Should we have a non umpire in the room to help provide a different perspective for these calls? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. I, I, I see it as certainly initially very problematic on a lot of levels. Is he an umpire? Is he part of the, Union is he, you know, like what is exactly is his role? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the umpires are trained, right? They're they're like trained for a certain purpose, and as a player, you seem like you'd have to get up to speed in terms of what are you looking for? Because what exactly is he going to add? Is it? Well, is that's it that? why you'd have um, you'd have umpires there too, right? But is you'd it for, this- is he there for the purpose of bias, like to to say? Hey, you know what? We need someone neutral, so you're not the one calling you out. Isn't your colleagues, but it's <laughs> someone else because it doesn't seem like enough. Um, you know, because yeah, I, I, you know, 
I understand that, you know, you see it in policing, for example. There's all this concern about, okay, I don't want to have oversight on my, the decisions officers make. So, you, so I get that concept, but it, this seems a little bit different because if the purpose is to be in the room because you're afraid of the bias, then you really have to address the bias too. You can't just leave it at that. And because uh, otherwise, why not get like a fan out of the stands? Why do you have to be a professional <laughs> ball player? Like, wait, you know, wait, some, wait, 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 someone, wait with, some, someone with really good eyes, right? Someone who has really good eyes. You know, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, why, why, oh. why a catcher or former player? All right, player? Well, all right here, here's my interpretation of this. You play baseball like your whole life, right? Correct. Um, in, in your experience, do players and umpires see stuff the same way? No. No, they don't. No. Oh, correct. <laughs> okay. no. You just answered the question. It's to provide a player's perspective. So while these umpires are agonizing over how it how it would feel to get your call overturned, you'd have an Eric Kratz in the room saying, what are you guys looking at? I was a catcher. When the guy doesn't touch home plate, he is not safe. <laughs> okay. Right, but like but you, basic stuff. Right, but you don't like need that. a big. All right, you don't need a big leaguer to do that. Number one. Number two. By the way, the most biased people in any major league game are the players <laughs> and the fans. Those are the most biased people out there who have vested interests. The umpires are actually the most neutral people of anybody. And that's the irony of it. Like their calls get criticized by people who are actually the most biased. There's no fan. If you're a Braves fan, you think like Snickers, you know, really, uh, I'm, I'm hacking his name up already, but you think he actually is like, oh, let me be objective. Of course not. You're, you're a Brave. You're a Philly. That's the thing. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe a former player who's gotten away from the game a little while, but I, I just, yeah, we see it differently, but the lens of a player certainly a current player is is more biased than anybody out there. They will know. You think have you have we ever seen a player go, "Hey, no, I actually didn't catch that ball. It I it was it was a trap." Like who <laughs> has we ever seen that? Never. Uh, all right, I get your point. I get your point. All right, let's let's address your concern then. Um these calls should be made by umpires. I got a text uh, Monday morning from a, a friend of mine, longtime umpire who he suggested something I've always been a fan of. And I know the umpires union has always kind of asked for, which is add a fifth umpire to every crew and station that umpire in the ballpark. Like give him his own booth, uh, kind of like what we see in football, like the coaches up there and, you know, their own little box with a million monitors in front of them. And so if there was a call, that was clearly wrong, this umpire would be the replay umpire that night, and he wouldn't be trying to overstep anybody's bounds. He's a teammate of these umpires. He's on the crew, and he would just signal down to them and say, no, we got this wrong. Let's fix it right now. You don't have to challenge. You don't have to call New York. You don't have to stand there with your headphones on for 10 minutes. Let's just fix it. Bam, bam, done. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I, I like it. I, I it has potential. I like the idea of you know, just like you have a third base, first base, you have a certain job. So his certain job or her certain job is to uh, oversee replay. What's the only reason to have replay? Get the calls right. Okay, mm -hmm. like so, if we could get the calls right, we could do it faster than we're doing it now. We could actually get more calls right, 
and the game would zip along and there'd be no jealousy and we don't want to overrule our friend, whatever. Like, why not try this? Well, I'll tell you the reason. Money. You have to hire, like, yeah. what? How many crews are there? 18, 20, 20 more umpires at big bucks. It's a lot of money for the sport. Yeah. But uh, I, I really like that idea. But as I mentioned, that was not even the only umpiring controversy in the NL East over the weekend because <laughs> right. we had a really bizarre ending to the Mets home opener against the Marlins. One, two coming. And the slider in there. Strike three. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. On the pitch. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Hit Conforto. He made no effort to get out of the way. It was a strike, but he didn't move. The ball hit him, and it was going to be a strike. Yep. That's just ridiculous. I have never seen that. <laughs> what a great job by Gary Cohen, Ron Darling, and Keith Hernandez. It was the Mets who were winning this game because of that call. They were still appalled. Appalled. <laughs> right. Because um, that was the right way to be. That pitch was a strike. And so, Doug, let me ask you this. Uh, you were hit by a pitch 21 times in the big leagues. Uh, you could get up on the plate. Now, were you ever hit by a ball that was actually a strike? No. Um, I was too busy swinging at anything within the <laughs> zip code of the strike zone. So definitely not. But um, the only recollection I have, I have to go back to high school. I made the New Jersey State All-Star game. And we go to like Princeton or somewhere. And uh, this left, I think it was a lefty, but it, whatever it was, it was a weird play. But he threw his nasty curveball and I it was so nasty I ducked I hadn't seen a curveball quite this good and I ducked and it hit me in the head in the strike zone apparently and the umpire I you know of course you get hit in the head why would I ever intentionally do that so I went to first and they called me back and said I intentionally put my head in the strike zone so that that was completely ridiculous but <laughs> that was the only time I could think of getting hit by a pitch in the strike zone Shouldn't that play at least be reviewable? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I know that they don't want to get into the realm of reviewing balls and strikes. That's why they don't review it. But it feels like if we're just going to look at that and review whether Michael Conforto got hit there, it's illogical. All right, it's like the NBA reviewing whether Steph Curry was behind the three-point line when he took that buzzer-beating shot uh, without factoring in whether or not the shot actually went in. Okay, like right. review right. the whole play, not just part of the play. Doesn't that make sense? It makes sense. And and I think, you know, what's tricky is, you know, intent, right? <clears throat> You'd have to figure out, okay, you know, it's like the Chase Utley rule, right? When he wiped out uh, Tejada in the playoffs. And now you kind of come out of it with like, okay, we have to figure out if this guy was really trying to break up a double play in this way. So I, they're also probably concerned about what Conforto really was trying to do. I, I, it looked pretty clear on, you know, from watching it that he at, leaned in a little extra to get that hit by pitch. And it, you know, it was a strike. So absolutely, you should, that should be reviewable. Because that's just, you, you think about the consequence of not reviewing it. What if that's the playoffs? What if that's like game seven? What if that's any, you know, right. any, you know, it's just... You can't yeah. hang your hat on if there's a time to review, it is the critical moment that decides the winning and losing of a game. Yes. Now, here's the clincher. Okay, the plate ump, Ron Culpa, even admitted after the game that he got this wrong. 
And how did he know he got it wrong, Doug? He went in and looked at the replay. Okay. So I rest my case. All right. One one more thing now before we bring in Joe Buck. Uh, we love to look back at the strangest but truest stuff that happened since our last show. And does it get much stranger but truer than the Padres going 8,205 consecutive games without a no-hitter? And then... On Friday in Texas, this happened. Ground ball to shortstop. Kim will go to first. The San Diego Padres get their first no-hitter in the history of the franchise. And it belongs to San Diego's own Joe Musgrove, sending the Friar faithful into a frenzy. What a tremendous call by Don Orsillo. I could listen to that one all day. Uh, look, Doug, I've been assembling many tidbits on this for this week's weird and wild column, but I'll just give you a preview of one. <laughs> Did you know that in the expansion era, this is 60 years worth, this has never happened that a team traded for a pitcher who had been in the big leagues like Joe Musgrove, and then within his first two starts for his new team, he threw a no-hitter? That's never happened. The only other time a team traded for a pitcher who then did that was 30 years ago. The White Sox traded for a pitching prospect. His name was Wilson Alvarez. Believe yeah. He faced him, right? Uh, he then went out and threw a no-hitter in his first start for the White Sox. But that was two years later. <laughs> it's not the same thing. No. So uh, this is incredible that Joe Musgrove, they traded for him, and then he went out and broke that streak, and he's from San Diego, right? <laughs> what a story. I don't even know if you would know anything about this, Doug, because I've got another strange but true fact for you. All those years that you played professional baseball, 14 seasons, majors and minors, can it possibly be true that your teams never threw a no-hitter, like not even one? Not a single one. No, we never threw one. No, nowhere. I can't. I can't think of anyone. No, and I think wow. the only and and the other way around is getting no hit. We we got no hit once in 1992, my first full season uh, ever in Winston Salem. We were the Spirits back then in the Carolina League, and the thing was that there was a ball hit by our DH or you know left-handed first baseman who hit a rocket off the third baseman. They scored it a hit, and then the guy gave up no other hits, and our official scorer overturned it to turn it into a no hitter. So it's kind of oh, no. right. It's kind of anticlimactic. It wasn't like people piling on and all that. Uh, that. That's the problem with you know sometimes with replay at the end. Like everybody's celebrating. Should we celebrate? Should we pour champagne, Gatorade on our heads? Oh, all right, now we can. Oh, you know that that's not great, but. Yeah, so that's it. And, of course, I, I messed up Eric Milton's no-hitter. That was another kind of close call. But for the most part, yeah, it hasn't happened. So uh, I, I don't know if that means anything in the history of baseball statistics, but no part of it. It's just amazing to me that he played something like 1,700 games. You're a one-man version <laughs> of the Padres. <laughs> exactly. Okay? Uh, okay, we need to bring in our guest, Joe Buck. But please, everybody. Hang in there to the end of this show because we have a really special episode of The Dugout where we will reveal how a magical baseball anniversary and Doug Glanville getting his driver's license converged. Just can't wait for that one. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. We are honored to welcome the one, the only, voice of baseball and NFL football and all things Fox to Starkville. It's our friend Joe Buck. Joe, thanks for joining us here in Starkville. Oh, my God. It's an honor. I got to tell you, uh, I put your resume in to the FBI, the CIA, and the U.S. <laughs> government because nobody can track down somebody like me. I've never... I had fewer texts uh, before my wedding, which was seven years ago today, Whoa. Uh, from family, friends, and my future wife than I've had from you over the past you know, week. So I, I'm honored. I'm glad this day is here so that you and I can stop texting, texting each I like other. it. Yeah. You'll never hear from me again, I'm sure. But I'm just friendly like that, Joe. I can't no, help it. I know. I love that. I, and not only that, you should also work for my podcast because we, our guests suck. And, and every time we try to get somebody, it's it's like herding cats. So come aboard. Right. Okay, well, that's not true. And that's that's a good reason to mention that Joe also hosts a podcast. It's called Daddy Issues. Whoa. Can't figure out where you yeah. come up oh, with that. I love it. <laughs> Well, I do it with Oliver Hudson, whose dad was Bill Hudson, still is Bill, Bill Hudson, who left him when he was about six. And then Kurt Russell took over. But it's not just daddy issues with Oliver. It's sister issues because his sister's Kate Hudson. It's mommy issues because his mommy's Goldie Hawn. It's stepdaddy issues because his stepdaddy is, uh, of course, Kurt Russell, Snake Bliskin. And then where's poor Oliver? And, and so he's got his own stuff going on. I have daddy issues in a good way. I, I got to follow my dad into this business. I, I loved being with him all summer, every summer, going to the ballpark, growing up at Bush Stadium, getting behind the scenes and seeing what it was all about. And I, I had the most charmed childhood with a dad who I considered my best friend as opposed to my father figure. And we had a blast. And so I, I have daddy issues, but they're good ones. Yeah, your dad was so great. Let, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you and your dad as we okay. go along here. But all right, first question, Joe, because Doug and I were just talking about no-hitters. So I thought I would ask you about the magic of calling a no-hitter. But then I Googled 
Joe Buck no hitters. <laughs> and you know the first thing that came up? Joe Buck no hitter jinx. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not allowed to talk. And, and I'm still not allowed to talk about it, I guess. I am I if I talk about it with you guys, am I jinxing it somehow for the next time somebody's got a no hitter in the eighth inning? Is is this gonna be referenced somehow? Because it's just it blows my mind to think just logically that people blame the announcer if they bring it up and somehow some way if if the announcer didn't say you know he's got a no hitter as we're into the eighth inning here that pitcher would have completed the no hitter that's just absurd but that's the way people think so i've jinxed kickers in my time and i've jinxed you know free throw shooters when i started when i was doing basketball and at some point, you got to mention that the guy hasn't given up a hit. So <laughs> announcers get cute. They're like, well, here we are into the eighth inning and uh, looking up at the scoreboard, the runs, hits, and errors. Uh, it's zero, zero, zero. So they, they have to make the audience like, jump through hoops to figure out the guy throwing no hitter. And it's just stupid. But yes, okay. Uh, I, I, have, I don't think the announcer has any bearing on the outcome of games or no hitters. You know, we all know that you have that kind of power. So, what's right. your fa- what's your favorite no hitter that you ever jinxed? <laughs> right, man. Well, I mean, there's there are too many to mention. All of them. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, every one of them. I mean, at some point, I've jinxed a no hitter. I third inning, second inning. <laughs> right. uh, you know, first inning doesn't matter. Is that going to be a hit or an error? Well, they're going to give an error. They're going to make the guy really earn his first hit in case later <laughs> we're talking about a no hitter. So, I don't know that I've ever called. A no hitter. I've called the Red Sox winning a World Series. I've called the White Sox winning a World Series. I've called the Cubs winning a World Series. I don't believe I've come close. I've come close. Mike Morgan, of all people, back in the day when I was with the Cardinals, had a no hitter into the ninth inning when he was with St. Louis. I think it was against the Cubs. And my dad and Mike Shannon, and then I was part of that radio crew. It was my dad's, obviously, he did the ninth inning play by play. And here goes Mike Morgan into the ninth. And my dad taps me on the shoulder and he goes, sit down there, kid. I've called no hitters before you haven't. And, you know, five seconds later, probably like, lock it into the corner. So I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't call a no hitter that night. And uh, if I have, it's slipping my mind as you hit me with this. But I don't think I've called one. Wow. And Glanville played baseball. We figured out, Doug, 1,700 games in professional baseball. His team never a no-hitter either. Yeah. So the two of them are human <laughs> no-hitter jinxes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I don't know what to, I don't even know how to defend yeah. myself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being Well, I mean, look, you should get credit for the fact that if you said you're calling the Cubs World Series, isn't that a little bit more powerful than a no-hitter by ending a lifelong curse, <laughs> a, a century-long curse? I think for these teams who have won World Series on my watch for the first time in damn in the case of the Red Sox almost a century and in the case of the Cubs over a century I should at least get a yeah, ring I like it that's it I'm not asking for a lot I don't want to be in the poster I don't want to you know be in the parade but I should at least get a ring because clearly I had a lot to do with them actually or, winning or get a voodoo doll one or the other a ring or I mean, <laughs> voodoo dolls I I don't mess with any voodoo that scares me I don't even touch those things. And I'm sure there are many announcers, younger and older, that have Joe Buck voodoo dolls that they stick pins in once a, once a day. Uh, and so far, I've stayed ahead of the voodoo. 
Yeah, like you, you know why you don't get any rings from those teams. That's because you hate those teams. <laughs> exactly. So, in fact, it's, I, I, right. I, I think this is your chance to clear this up, Joe. Why do you hate all 30 teams? <laughs> it's, it's hard to do, but I've managed to do it and do it well. Uh, it, it's, it's something that it's funny. You know, I don't know that people really think about it this way, but it's something that my dad talked about with me. When I started out at Fox doing a national game, it's something I, I heard him talk about with Vin Scully, who the great Vin Scully, greatest of all time, would get it because he was the Dodger announcer. And whether it was Dodgers against name it. I mean, how many series did he do? The one that sticks out is, is obviously the Kirk Gibson home run in 1988. So it's just when you do a game locally, which I did for the Cardinals for over, I don't know what it was by the end, 14, 15 years. And then you do the national game. It's an entirely different way to think. And so if you're watching the Phillies game, the Phillies announcers are excited and screaming and yelling when the Phillies hit a home run. And when they have one hit against them, their voice almost drops. It's like, oh, there's a fly ball into left field. And that ball's going to go. That puts the Cubs up three to two here in the seventh inning. But if I'm calling it for a World Series, I got to go, Fly ball and I feel that ball gone. The Cubs go ahead three, and everybody in Philadelphia is throwing stuff at their TV, and that's just the way it goes. So uh, that—that's why I've done it for so long now. I think I've done 23 World Series that I've been—I've been able to piss off every fan base probably out there, and you know I've got at least two more uh, to come. God willing. Well, and Joe, it's right. it's interesting because from a player's point of view, and we were warned about this, I remember early in my career, is that you have your beat writers, right, traveling with the team. And then once in a while, if you gain status to get the national story attention, maybe a writer from SI comes in, they didn't have as much of a vested interest in sort of protecting certain relationships, right? They had the national story. And so the beat writers knew, you know, Jason, you know, you could attest to that, like, okay, I, I'm a little concerned about this dynamic in the relationship because I have to preserve 162 games. So that sometimes is the, is the challenge, right? As, even as a player, because the stakes are so different when kind of people are swooping in and swooping out. And, and I would imagine for you on the player's side of that, that that works both ways too. So yeah, you don't see whoever it is, Jason back in the day or Kenny Rosenthal with the Orioles back in the day, or I'm in St. Louis and Hall of Famer Rick Hummel, whatever. You, you see them, at least when I was doing this and times were normal, you see them on the bus, you see them on the charter, you see them in the hotel. You see, I mean, you see them in the hotel bar. You see, you have a relationship. Now all of a sudden somebody else comes in and they're asking you, to assess your season, assess your play, talk about your history, whatever it is. And and on one hand, it's like, well, who is this person? On the other, it's like, well, it's kind of refreshing to talk to somebody new. Um, and, and what I've always said as the team announcer, you're far less journalistically sound because you know so much more information. I mean, I people, I did a thing on HBO on, on uh, Real Sports where they uh, asked me about McGuire's home run chase and the PED use and all that. I'm, I, first of all, I, I saw no, I can swear on a Bible. And of course that stuff's not going on in, in plain view of anybody, certainly like me as, as the team announcer, but there are other things you know about players, like what's going on with their family. Who's about to get divorced. Who was hammered at the bar the night before. And, and 
you may use that as your own background to make a, an assessment of somebody to color in the assessment of somebody's play if they're struggling or whatever but that's not stuff that you put out there or these guys would never look at you let alone talk to you ever again so you have to as you said doug protect some of those relationships because it's survival of being on the inside part of the ropes instead of on the outside looking in that's just the way it is all right. Well, look, now that we've got all these misconceptions about you cleared up, Joe, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right, it's 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 now 30 years since you first began broadcasting baseball, sitting next to your dad, people who somehow don't know the great Jack Buck in the Cardinals radio booth. If I had told you then that over the next three decades, you would call 23 World Series and six Super Bowls, what would you have said? I would have said the same thing my dad would have said, which was you're out of your mind. Um, and, and I say that because it's it's weird for me to look back now as I'm about to turn 52 and think at one point I was 27 and I was in the Bronx and I was about to open my mouth and call my first World Series in 1996. And that was Jeter's rookie year. That was the start of what we all came to know is this great run with the New York Yankees and they hadn't won in a long time. And, you know, I was just trying to make sure I wasn't going to get exposed to some fraud sitting there in the broadcast booth. And I'm sitting next to Tim McCarver, who was a Cardinal who I first met when I was four. And, you know, it just, a lot of stuff was swirling around. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, let's just get through this one. And you're not thinking down the road at all. And calling my dad before and after games and, and going through all that and, and just knowing that I, I ended up at a place that, I, that just continues to buy the rights to baseball. I didn't win a national talent search and uh, Simon Cowell isn't evaluating <laughs> my broadcasting and saying, well, you're the guy that should call the next 23 World Series. It's not that. It's that Fox wrote the bigger check, so Fox has it. And I was lucky enough to audition when they got football, get in the door. My calling card or what I had always done was baseball and always I'd only been doing it for a few years at the big league level at that point. But but that's, I, I just ended up at the place that continues to want to pay to cover baseball in October on a network level. And, and I've been lucky enough to do a decent job to where they don't want to put somebody else in there yet. And I'm sure they will. So, you know, it is crazy but I think it, it says more about Fox than it does about me in a weird way. If, if I couldn't now, if I couldn't have done it and if I was swallowed up by the big moment, I wouldn't have done more than one. But, you know, to, to look at the volume of it, that really speaks more to the network than it does to any individual doing it. All right, well, you're really selling yourself short, man. <laughs> because well, I, that's look, how I feel, though. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I swear it. it it, I, I think it's it's great to feel that way, but you have to know that if you weren't good at this, um, they wouldn't ask you to do the World Series every year <laughs> and the Super Bowl every time it comes up and half the, uh, the golf tournament's coming through town. Right. Let's, let's have Joe do that. Like The that. worst one was live bass fishing. When they asked me to do live bass fishing, I should, that's, I should have said no, but yeah. I said yes. Right. And I went... And live fishing should never be told, <laughs> ever. 
because I, I, no I, fish bit and we screwed up the way in at the end. When, when the whole thing ends, the, the, the ultimate moment of the broadcast is a way in of fish. <laughs> That should not be on network television. I got an important question now. Just alienated did you the jinx bass the fish fishermen community. or the. F- Wait, did you jinx the fish? I know. That's right. They I, can I, get on. They can get on. I, I need to know this. Did you jinx the fishermen or the fish? <laughs> I, I think I think I jinxed the fishermen, uh, or they jinxed us because it was like, hey, they've been fishing all day, and this is way more information than you want. But they were all, all on earpieces and microphones, and they all forgot to turn their earpieces on when we came on the air at four thirty Eastern and turned their microphones on. So I'm talking. Hey, let's go out to. Uh, Kevin Smith, who's out there on Lake Lulu here in the Orlando area. Kevin, how they biting out there today? Which was my only question I could ever come up with because I'm a fishing idiot. And he's just fishing and didn't hear me. And then I'd go to the next guy. He'd hear me, but he didn't turn his mic on. So he's talking. And it just was like a horrible Zoom meeting with lakes and boats involved. <laughs> Like I've totally lost my train of thought now, but I know somewhere in there I was going to ask you if there's a secret to the big call. Like you always rise to the big moment in a way that not everybody can or does. Have you thought much about what those calls should be or do they just come out? No, I'm sitting here talking to you in my office and behind me in a cabinet uh, is the score sheet that I had in front of me from McGuire's home run chase in 98. And I learned a lesson that year that I've carried with me ever since. And that was, you know, as he was closing in on it, everybody would ask me, you know, well, if you're at the microphone, what are you going to say if he breaks the record? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what I'm going to say tonight as I'm doing the Cardinals against the Padres on a Tuesday. So you just kind of roll with it. Well, then another person would ask, then another person would ask. And then soon I took the bait and I'd go to bed thinking about the home run call and I'd wake up thinking about the home run call. And that morning I wrote down in my scorebook what I was going to say if he hit it that night. And Fox had preempted all their primetime programming and Sammy Sosa's in the outfield. It was just, you know, it was crazy. I think it was a Tuesday night. And so I write this corny line down in my scorebook and i'm like man when this ball sails out of the park i'm going to read this award-winning home run call and i'm going to win an emmy because this is unbelievable (laughs) nobody's ever thought of these words put together before and i so the home run he hit was this hooking line drive like just perfectly placed right over the wall right inside the foul pole it of all the home runs he hit it was easily the shortest, easily the quickest, because it was a line drive that if it didn't go over the wall, would have gone through it. And I never could get my eyes down to that little part of my scorebook. And because of that, I was just, my eyes were peeled to make sure that I got, that it was a home run, that now it's gone. Now, what are you going to say? And as I look down, at the field, I see he's watching it too, and he's so excited, he leaps over first base. <laughs> and that became part of the call. And I, I somehow got it out that, you know, touch first, Mark, you are the new single season home run king. And I, I had never thought of any of those words, even the <laughs> phrase single season home run king, none of that. That wasn't in the thing that I wrote down. And and it was just, it was proof positive that you cannot script these these 
big moments. You have to just see what happens and trust your gut and trust your mind and trust your eyes, trust your judgment and know that you're going to rise up to the challenge. And, and that's the best way to do it. That's what I would tell any broadcast student. Don't try to plan everything out. Just do your homework, be prepared and see what happens. And that's the only way you can do it. So, you know, that, that, that's a long answer, but that, that's the best way I can tell you that I learned that you cannot try to make these corny things fit a moment. You have to let the moment go. And especially on TV, just hit the high notes and, and kind of get out of the way. Well, and Joe, it, there, there's a certain gift to that too. There's a poetic gift that you absolutely possess. So I, I'm curious, what's the difference between the sports? You know, based on you know McGuire's Chase and Sosa, What's the difference between baseball in, in elevating those moments versus all the other sports? I, I just think, and, and it's obviously the people on this Zoom call or anybody listening loves baseball. And, and it's my number one love other than my family. It, it's how I grew up. It's what I think about when I think about my dad. It's what I think about when I think about my childhood. Um, I, I think baseball lends itself to those moments a little bit more. Like when do you get, rarely do you get a walk-off touchdown. If it comes in the NFL, if you get those moments, we, I, I had, I've had two that I can think of. The Seahawks winning an NFC championship game over the Packers on a walk-off touchdown in overtime. And then the Stefan Diggs moment when he went down the sideline and beat the Saints. But other than that, the sport really doesn't lend itself to that. It's more like this battle and this tug of war. And if it comes down to that final moment, it's probably a kicker on the field that's either going to make or miss a kick. And and that's how the game is decided. Baseball has so much more nuance and, and there's so much more time in there to talk about. We talk to the manager. Here's the matchup he's really looking at for the eighth or ninth inning. Here's the guy he's saving. Here's who's on his bench. Here's what this manager's thinking about because of who's on their bench. And a guy can be at the plate fouling off pitch after pitch. There's time to do that. Football, when there's a play clock, the play ends, and then there's there's mechanics to get to the next play. I say who made the catch, how many yards, what the down and distance is. Troy talks. We get up near the play clock and the teams at the line of scrimmage. And then you start that process over and it just keeps going over and over. Baseball doesn't have that. Baseball has more starts and stops and and time to do stuff that that I just love. I, if you love the strategy of baseball, which is becoming less and less a part of the game, in my opinion, unfortunately, uh, you love calling this game because there's just more to do and there's more to throw out there as possibilities and and so baseball is is the king for that as a broadcaster in my opinion and, and what's the well, since you're, yeah i was gonna say what's the difference yeah, in the sense of you mentioned 2021 baseball versus what you've seen over over your history uh whether the analytics how is that sort of colored how you describe the game you know it's funny I feel like, and John Smoltz has learned this lesson. I've, I've known this lesson. So if, if you complain about today's game, and I'm not, I just think it's different. It's different than when you got involved. It's different than when Jason got involved. I, I, and, and, and in some ways, it's better because there's more ways to quantify who's good and who's bad. 
But I, I feel like you can never take the human element out of it. And, and you can never make a pitching change at one o'clock in the afternoon based on how a game is going to go according to your plans and, and just have that be the concrete way that you're going to go about managing a ball game and take the ability of, of a man standing in the dugout, looking at somebody in the eyes, sensing if somebody's got more than they thought they would have that day or less than they thought they would have that day. I, I think the human element can never be discounted. And when decisions are made purely on analytics, it, it sometimes logic isn't involved as much as, in my opinion, it should be. But when I grew up on it, you think about the teams I saw, the Cardinals were terrible in the 70s. And then Whitey Herzog comes to, to town and they use the big ballpark the carpet. They were a gap hitting team, not a team that had a lot of power, but they were nuisances on the bases. They, they would get on, they'd steal a big bag, they'd get guys over, they could get a ground ball to the right side or the left side when they needed it or a sack fly. There's so many, there were so many different ways to score runs back then. And now it's, it's worn out, but with the three true outcomes and shifting and all that, um, you know, there have to be older baseball players that look at a defense that swung around on one side of the infield and go, you've got to be kidding me, especially in October. In a one or two run game, it's like, what is happening? You, This entire side of the infield is open. Nobody's able to get on base. And yet just obstinately, they're just still just launch, launch, launch. And, and there are other ways to score runs. So I, I think there's room for both, but you cannot – just eliminate the eye test and that old school baseball understanding of when somebody wants the ball hit to them in a big spot or somebody doesn't. All right, we've been dancing around moments and memories that you've seen, games you've called. I, like I always tell Joe, um, Joe, I always tell people that one of my favorite things about my job is I get to see games and moments that people talk about literally for the rest of their lives. And you've called those games and you've called those moments. I just wanted to ask you about a few of your favorites. What would you say just as a World Series it was the greatest World Series that you ever called? Mm. Well, they say you don't ever forget your first. doesn't matter first what. You don't ever forget your first. But that 96 series was great. Yeah. I, I will never forget leaving Yankee Stadium. Braves are up two games to nothing. And all of the Fox executives are like, we're dead. It's our first World <laughs> Series. It's going to be a four-game sweep. They're going back to Atlanta. And you think about the Jim Layritz home run or, uh, you know, the, the, tie, the tying shot that he had. Um, coming off the bench or you have uh, them winning at home and Wade Boggs on the horse with the American flag after, you know, uh, 2001 and George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch, which take politics completely out of the equation. That was the president of the United States making a declarative statement and the biggest stage in sports for the United States and the heels of uh, 9-11 throwing a strike from the mound was like one of the most powerful things I've seen on a sports field. And again, does not matter. Politics don't even enter into it. Um, I, I would say game six of 2011 with the Cardinals and the Rangers and David Freeze uh, tying the game with a two-out, two-strike triple 
uh, to get it to extra innings. And then the Rangers go up trying to win their first World Series. And then the Cardinals tying it again in the 10th and then Freeze winning it in the 11th with a home run, a St. Louis kid doing it to force game seven, which they won, is one that stands out to me. And, you know, the 2000 World Series itself, forget the first pitch. It was unbelievable. And the Diamondbacks beating Mariano Rivera, who otherwise was untouchable seemingly every time he stepped onto the field, blowing a game seven World Series save. Um, Every year is different and every year is unique. The Cubs winning it all, I, I don't think it'll ever get bigger than that in my career to think that I got to sit in Wrigley Field in the postseason in, in a in a championship series for the first time since 1945. And I got to watch them win their first World Series since before World War I, uh, 108 years prior. Uh, the Red Sox and, and how many generations had come and gone and not seen them win it all. And, and to be there and call that, um, you know, every year is different, but those are the ones. I mean, I think those are the ones that, that stand out to me the most. I am so glad that you brought up game six, 2011, because I tell people all the time, that is the greatest world series game ever played. The team that won trailed five different times okay the cardinals had never trailed five times in any game in their history and won it but they won that night and if they hadn't they go home they 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 were one strike away from losing two different innings and they won it's the greatest game ever right i i well i think so but people go well you're from st louis but i think from a from a just a pure love of baseball that that game six had every it had ugly <laughs> yeah it had a dropped pop-up it had uh beautiful you know it, it had beautiful for both sides and it, it it literally had everything and it's one of those games where even when you know how it ends if you watch a replay of it you can't believe how it ends because you're right i mean i didn't know it was five times that they trailed but that was a team that had to scrap just to get in. That was not a great team. That was a team that, that went crazy in, uh, in September just to get into the tournament. And then it's just one of those Carl Spackler, Cinderella story situations. And they end up winning. They end up winning the whole thing in unbelievable fashion and true to form. I went down and saw the Rusa after the game, after that game six, was like, are you kidding me? Have you ever seen a more thrilling game than that? And and as to- only Tony, he goes, only going to matter if we win tomorrow. And, <laughs> and in some ways, he's right, because had they lost game seven, that would have been a nice footnote, hell of a game, but it just delayed the Rangers one night from winning the World Series. But they went on to win game seven, and, and that's what makes game six so great. That, again, that's the beauty of baseball. Yeah. All right. Well, one more memory question. I'm sure you must have a favorite Doug Glanville oh, memory moment, right? Unforgettable uh, the pin- career. The, the pinch hit triple in 03 when, uh, for the Cubs. When, and, and this is one of those things. We, all, we started this by talking about what we root for as broadcasters or, or as a play-by-play guy, what you're always accused of rooting against. I can honestly, I will come, I will come clean right now. We, my group was, my production group 
was doing the Yankees Red Sox, which was unreal too. I mean, it was another great series, um, LCS, no doubt about it. But we were in all in a car driving, somehow trying to get a team. It was like a stretch limo. It was McCarver and our producer and our director and me and Steve Horner who works with me and we're all in the back. And we're trying to get this crappy TV that was, you know, we're all like standing with the the antenna and putting it in my mouth and trying to get the picture to come through. And, you know, they have that lead and it's like, Oh my God, we are going to get the winner of this series. Doesn't matter who wins Yankees, Red Sox against the Cubs. Are you kidding me? And, and so that was as an announcer, like gut wrenching because you just think that it can get no better. And, and so, I mean, I, I always admired Doug as a player because I, there are very few people whose games I call who I think, you know, that guy is probably exactly twice as smart as I am. They may be smarter than me, but exactly <laughs> twice as smart as I am. I was like, how dare he? <laughs> run around center field, make his plays, get his hits, and have gone to Penn. I don't like him. I don't like that guy. Just because he makes me feel like a, a way inferior human being. So I always admired him. I admired the way he played. I admired the way and we're talking. He could say, I'm right here. But I, I know he's right here. But, yeah, I, I just I think people that are kind of the outliers – are always the most interesting and it never surprised me that he went into this kind of stuff or broadcasting or so good for you. I Doug, it's, it was a, it was fun watching you play and it's been fun watching you since you played. Oh, thanks Joe. And I, I, I definitely tried to be a thorn in LaRusse's side in St. Louis. I, I did, <laughs> did all right with that. Yeah, no doubt. Well, what, yeah. One thing that, you know, has definitely been on my mind as we've seen the evolution of sport, you've seen sports, at the highest level in their greatest on the greatest stages of them and we're seeing more and more or at least a rebirth of how sports and athletes are trying to engage on social issues i mean what has been your your sentiment around you know how that's evolved what's different and what these sports should really stand for it makes me proud um just that that's the first word that comes to mind it makes me proud that people that I cover and who I admire anyway. I, I mean, you know, I grew up, I, I remember when my dad and I drove to Louisville and I was starting my AAA career, we were coming out of spring training and, and he talked to me about, you know, you're going to AAA, you're going to broadcast AAA, you've been around Major League Baseball your whole life. Unless you think you could have made that play 10 times out of 10, realize how hard it is what these people are trying to do. Realize that they're people first and foremost. And secondly, realize how hard it is what they're trying to do. So I've always had this reverence for what you guys and, and athletes can do. And now to add this extra layer. And I think that's where at times there can be a disconnect. What I've always known, and I think the greatest gift I got as a young person was being around players as a four-year-old, being on a, being on a, cardinal road trip and on the team plane seeing stuff i probably shouldn't have seen uh as as a 12 year old uh seeing stuff in the hotel probably shouldn't have seen as a 14 year old but you realize that these are people and they're they're not perfect and they are trying their best 
and they are going to make mistakes and they're also going to thrill the hell out of you. And, and I have seen that. I, I always saw my dad's love for the professional athlete. And, and over the past couple of years, Doug, I, I think he would be really proud that people who he admired so much now seem to be willing to use their voice to make social change. And, and I think that's kind of, that's been the, the next step and the evolution of the professional athlete. So to answer your question, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of what I see around me. And, and in many cases, the way Colin Kaepernick grew up is so different than the way I grew up. And I, I respect that. And I respect somebody using their voice and I respect somebody saying, well, here's how it was for me. And here's how, uh, here's how I want to make a difference. And then when they start putting money or time behind these efforts, it, you realize how special a lot of these athletes are. So I, I'm, I'm really proud that, uh, that the people that I get to cover are also making a difference in society. And there's a long history of it. And we just lost one of the greatest of all time in Hank Aaron, who you can make the case is one of you know top five players of all time, but also front and center in the civil rights movement and and somebody who i i think would be uh proud at at and i'm sure was up until the day he passed away of, of today's professional athlete being able to use all these new mediums to reach fans and reach people to make a difference uh joe you mentioned your dad and your dad was a legend but also just a wonderful special man and let's bring this around to him uh you know my kids all work in sports now uh, and my daughter hallie actually works in baseball so we share an incredible bond because of that can you describe that bond with you and your father and how it shaped your life and career i mean i i could i will give you the quickest version of something that I've taken a lifetime to really understand. Um, he was my best friend. He was my idol. He was somebody that had time for everybody. It, on the list of things that I think made my dad great, calling baseball or football or doing a radio call-in show is, a, is after you hit triple digits. It, it's like 100th on the list. He was a person who wanted to raise uh, money and awareness for any any issue that came up he was like yep I'll, I'll be there he 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 was a guy that never said no and and so it's been hard to live in that shadow um he was tireless he was a kid who grew up in the depression he was a world war ii vet and a purple heart recipient i, I think he lived his life in a way that i could only dream about living i and he was kind of a carefree guy but somebody who was also there to I, I watched him hand out hundred dollar bills to concessionaires the elevator worker in stadiums that he he listened when he said what's your name where are you from you tell me something about your family he and he remembered it and so i saw somebody that came from nothing uh he refused to accept the horatio alger award uh when he was awarded it because he thought it it looked bad on his parents. He had a loving family. They just didn't have any money. And, and he got an education at Ohio State because he was on the GI Bill and went to World War II. 
and and was you know was shot in germany while he was there and and so he had an unbelievable foundation of knowledge and life experience that he funneled into every broadcaster every interview and he really loved people so uh, it's it's a long-winded way of saying i had a master class in broadcasting in my house when I was a child. And, and that guy was waking me up for school, screaming up the top of the steps when I was lazy and not getting out of bed. But I also had a master's class into how not to be a jerk and, and how to treat people the right way. And so between he and my mom, I, I just, I, I was really fortunate and I never knew how fortunate I felt. I, I think back then I thought everybody had that kind of a childhood. And now as I get older, my dad went through divorce i was a product of that uh on the that was i was really the reason for that i went through divorce myself i know what it's like familially with all the travel and everything else and different places pulling at you i just saw a guy who was there for for others and and i've tried to live that example the best way i can and uh I, I love the way he broadcast games, but I love the way he lived his life more than that. Well, your dad's honored in the Pro Football and Baseball Halls of Fame, right? The the Frick Award yeah. and the Rosell Award. And now you're going to be honored with the Rosell Award this summer. Couldn't be happier for you. It's richly deserved. So uh, let's, let's end with this. Um, I mean, you've had a career that literally – like no one else has had in, in sports broadcasting. And you've kept a, a an, an amazing pace. Uh, October bouncing back and forth between football and baseball and one coast and the other coast. Amazing. So what do you want your legacy to be? What would you like people to say about Joe Buck when you're done? I'd like them to meet Natalie, Trudy, Wyatt and Blake Buck and say they must have had a hell of a dad. And and beyond that, you know, broadcasters come and go. I, I think the ones that have a lasting impression are the ones that make a difference in their communities. So whether it's me with Children's Hospital or different things I do, or just, you know, sticking my hand out or, or trying to do the same thing I just talked about with my dad, paying attention when somebody tells you a story or, or you know, keep my head up and look at people in the eyes when I'm talking to them and, and you know, hear why they, why Cardinal baseball is so special to them or hear why my dad's so special to them. I just want to be a good citizen in the world. And beyond that, my, that, that's all I care about in my legacy. Not, oh, he called, McGuire's home run or the Cubs winning the World Series or whatever. I, I, I don't think that's as important as the other stuff. So let's start with great dad, great husband, I hope, um, and a great friend. And, and beyond that, it sounds corny, but I, I, the other stuff I really don't care about. Well, that'd be a cool legacy for anybody. Uh, yeah we can all we can all attain that somehow in our own special way. All right, just, yeah. just, just treat people right. Um, understand what matters in life. And uh, when McGuire hits the most historic home run you've ever witnessed, get it right. <laughs> get it right. Don't screw it up. But it, you know what? On, on a serious note, it means a lot. I, I know it does to you to have your daughter in the business. And I think it says a lot about you because if you have a parent that does something that they enjoy and you see them walk out of the door every day to go to work with a smile on their face and you see how They'd rather go to work than have a day off. And that was how it was with my dad. I think it's only natural to want to follow them 
into that business, especially if you're close to that parent. So it could have been anything. I just happened to be born to a Hall of Fame announcer who was ready to be a great dad and wanted me around him. And so, you know, then here we are. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, you did one thing that your dad never got to do. You got to visit Starkville. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did, yeah. But I could just imagine my, who the hell else? <laughs> Everybody's got a podcast. It's a guy fixing my journey. I'm waiting for him to come down and go, hey, can you be a guest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're lucky because we got you to stop by <laughs> our podcast. The Chimney Guy's on next week. How'd you know? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. He's, he's very in. I talked to him for about 10 minutes. I think he'd be a good It's guest. not Santa, is it? You, it's, Santa? It's not, it's a, I think Santa screwed up me up. I've got uh, three-year-old twin boys now, so uh, we're back on the Santa train. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, that's Doug, you're a genius. I am going to now tell my boys that the reason our chimney needs tuck pointing and is screwed up is because Santa ate too much this past year because of the pandemic. <laughs> exactly all right yeah. joe we could talk to you all day man but i know i know you've got like seven games to call this week so <laughs> i don't i just have seven podcasts today. <laughs> right. well you're the best man thank you so much for doing all this. Right, thanks guys. joe yeah my, my my total pleasure yeah, thanks man, guys. take care of yourself are you struggling to close deals b2b selling is tougher than ever and that's why i want to tell you about linkedin sales navigator one more great product from linkedin you're there to network you're there to look for jobs you're there to post jobs and how about linkedin sales navigator it's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high value customers drive higher revenue and increase sales performance sales navigator helps you target the right buyers surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. 
promo code MLBSHOW. Okay, it's that time again. It is time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And once again this year, we are literally involving you by inviting you to join our podcast live to stump us with your questions. And that's going well, actually. Uh, Doug, we've now had, it's two of these trivia segments since the trivia police shut down your devious cheating scheme. And I want you to recap for us. How many have we gotten right since uh, you were forced to play this game on the up and up, Doug? Uh, Well, defining right is getting all parts of the question correct, (laughs) not just half. It's how the trivia business works. We get the entire Uh, question right. Yes. All right. Well, I'd say we are 0 for 2. We fouled off a couple pitches, but we have not gotten the base hit clean through the infield. Right. You merely have to count to two because that's how many we have gotten wrong. (laughs) On that note, let us bring in this week's special guest trivia contestant. It's David yeah. Salaturo, who is a fellow sports writer. David, welcome to Starkville. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Doug, I'm just warning you that David thinks kind of like me. Uh, he covers the <laughs> Blue Jays for the fan-sided website. Does it really well. And I, I should admit that his notes have been known to show up in my column from time to time, including... Just the other day. So, David, how did you get to be such a big fan of cool stats and trivia? I've been reading your columns ever since you were on ESPN 10 years ago, (laughs) even more than that. I've always been fascinated by the history of the game, how every seemingly every day a different piece of history is made. So that's pretty much why I, I try to go deep into the stats every day, try to find out interesting things that always happen. Do you have a favorite Toronto like Blue Jay stat that you get that you your memory of them in terms of uh, how you've gotten into our quirky world of Jason Stark and Doug Glanville? <laughs> I actually have seen something live that's about five times more unlikely than a perfect game. That's mm-hmm. in two thousand and three, Reed Johnson led off the Blue Jays half of the first inning with a home run and he had a walk off home run that same game. Is one of only five people in modern history to lead off and walk off home run in the same game. Wow, wow. Awesome. Luckily, that is not our trivia question for the day. Because <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> no we would be whiffing on that one for sure. <laughs> Time for you to ask this week's question, then we will get it wrong, and then we'll return to our normal lives or as close to normal as we ever get. So, David, go for it. So, we all know that Johnny Vandermeer threw no hitters and back to back starts in 1938. So, my question is. Which pitcher has the second fewest starts in between no hitters? Well, you also had a hint. You want to give the hint too? My hint is that the same pitcher coincidentally also had the most career starts before he ever threw his first one. Yeah. Let me just say that hint was enormously helpful to me anyway. Okay. Like it's a great question, but because of that hint, I think I might have this Uh, because like first, I started thinking about pitchers who I knew through two no hitters in a row. Like Homer Bailey did that of all people. Okay, Mark Burley came to mind. But then I realized the key is your hint. Most career starts before throwing a no hitter. So now I started thinking about pitchers who were around a long time and started perfecting the no hit thing. So my first thought was Phil Necro. 
I don't remember him throwing two, but that got me thinking about the Braves, and then it hit me. Warren Spahn threw two no-hitters. I'm pretty sure they both came after he turned 40, so I'm thinking, Doug, that it's Warren Spahn, but maybe you have a better guess than that. I well, first thing, just thinking, you know, recent times, I thought about Homer Bailey. I, I know they were pretty close together, from what I remember. But then the, the next guess for me was Jake Arietta, because you know Jake took a while to get that first, you know, no hitter. Uh, now I, I don't know if it was a, it, the hint wasn't the longest to get to the first no hitter. It just took, right? Most I mean, starts. I just want to make sure Not, it wasn't an most age starts. Thing. Right. Okay. Most starts. Okay. So, and you know, he was on fire and and it seemed like they were back to back. I know one of the games, you know, the network was calling it and so right. on. That that's, that's all I got. I got like Jake Arrieta is what I, what I've got. Okay, so I came up with like seven answers. You came up with one answer, but we're going to go with my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Verlander. I mean, Verlander is the only one that I thought of like who had multiple yeah, ones, but, he, but yeah. He's been doing this since he was... Uh, way younger than this yeah, so he's like three um so i think warren so, spawn should be our answer correct is there any chance that it's warren spawn <laughs> warren spawn made 506 starts before he threw his first no hitter against the phillies in september of 1960 and he threw a no hitter against the giants six starts later at the start of the 1961 season so you are nice. <laughs> what what that was all you. Oh, my God. I I have no idea how we did this, but a miracle happened. We got it right, Very and we did done. not cheat. Oh, my God. <laughs> we did not, because otherwise we'd have two guests. <laughs> right. So, like, I mean, let's do the math, Doug. I believe we're one in two this year. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's that's uh, that's di- We're getting back on our dynasty run right here. Are we? One in a row is a dynasty? Win. Absolutely. One in a row. <laughs> Boy, the... The bar is low. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Whatever. If you listen regularly, you know that whether we get the question right or whether we get it wrong, we still bring in the mayor to play some cool audio clip that has something to do with the trivia question or answer. So let's bring back the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim. What do you got for us today? I searched the dark caverns of the internet and could not find audio of either no hitter but there is audio of warren spawn so another great moment in his career uh let's go back to win number 300 warren really wants this win a slow curve fools pinch hitter jim McEnany, who flies out to henry aaron and the ball game is over jubilation runs rampant at milwaukee county stadium where baseball history is made Warren Spahn, who won his first game at age 25, wins number 300 at age 40. That was August 11th, 1961 against the Cubs. Wait a second, though. That was not live play-by-play. That was like back in the in the day when movies were in black and white. Yeah. Like they used to have like it's the newsreel. The, news the newsreel. Let's yes. review all the big news for this week in 1937. <laughs> Was that what that was? Well, I, I, that I'm is gonna, exactly what well, that they just was. Gave me a fr- Those are great, those old newsreels. David, great job with that question, <laughs> even though we somehow got it right. Uh, great. Um, thank you. Please keep the great notes coming, and thanks for joining us here in Starkville, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. Awesome thanks, job. Dave. Thanks, Dave. So remember, next time this can be you asking one of these questions and experiencing the thrill of victory. 
or the agony of having us somehow get one of these questions right, like we just did. We'll tell you how to do that in a couple of minutes. But first, we need to take a quick trip to the dugout. The dugout, for those who listen to this mess regularly know, it's a recurring segment on the show in which we give my friend Doug Glanville a chance to tell one or two of his amazing and hilarious stories from his glorious baseball career. So, Doug, uh, this is where I remind you that just this weekend, there was a momentous anniversary. It was the 50th anniversary of the opening of your very favorite place in baseball, by which I mean, and somehow or other, I don't think I'm kidding about this, the late, not really that great, Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia. The Vet! Okay? And ladies and gentlemen, if I remember this right, I believe you told me this, Doug, once, that after the young Doug Glanville first got his driver's license, this would be many years ago, the very first place that you drove was to the vet? Is that a true story, <laughs> Doug? This is true. This, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> well, first, when they, when they demolished the vet, did they also destroy the, the courthouse? Wasn't there like a jail, uh, a courthouse in there? So uh, Yeah, hopefully there's nobody down. left in it by the time yeah, they no. blew it up. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a good move. Well, this is true. I uh, always was a Phillies fan. I mean, you know, from, from jump. And really the powder blue uniform cemented the deal. But I was a big fan. And anytime, you know, of course, it made me a National League fan. So whenever the Phillies were in town, I tried to get to Shea Stadium with the Mets and get a chance because I was six miles from the George Washington Bridge. And I was actually a National League fan, you know, over the Yankees being closer. So... Of course, when I had a chance to be mobile and get my license, I plotted out this road trip. And the first road trip I was dedicated is I got to see the Phillies in their home ballpark. No more road unis, even though I love the powder blue. I didn't want to see them at Shea. I wanted to see them where it all happened, where the magic <laughs> went down. So that is what I did. And it, was, so it, was my, it wasn't my first drive, but it was my first real like road trip going solo without mom and dad and or my brother, I, I want to say I went with, with a friend of mine. Not sure my memory is clear on that, but we, um, yeah, it was great. And and the thing that was a little bit anticlimactic is I went to see the Mets on the road. All right now, you grew up watching games at the Vet, and then you got to play at the Vet. Yeah. Now we both spent many many days and nights at that place. Let's just say Wrigley Field. It was not Oracle <laughs> right. Park out in San Francisco. It was not. It was round and gray. It had a little wildlife running around in its bowels. You know what else it had, Doug? It had an emerald field of concrete. <laughs> like, yes. you had to play baseball on that Astro concrete. Somehow your knees are still attached to the rest of you. <laughs> Barely. Um, and, you know, one thing I would, one thing that I remember is that when it would get really hot, the temperature on that Astro concrete would rise to something like 3,000 degrees, okay? And I used to write about stuff like that. I, I recall asking a player named Doug Glanville once what it was like to play baseball on that stuff for three hours when the temperature on the field was, according to scientists, 3,000. 
thousand degrees. <laughs> and you replied, now I know what a slab of bacon feels like. <laughs> so, so, Doug, what was that like? Wow. I mean, it was oppressive heat. It, it really was because there is something about being bacon that you just cannot anticipate until you are that bacon. And uh, yeah, because it's the extra, it's the sizzle. It's like, you know, it's your body just oils just turning into actually bacon grease or Crisco or some form of canola oil. Uh, and I mean, and, you, and it's inescapable because, you know, you know how it is. You look out on the field and you see the ripples of heat like you're in the Sahara Desert. You just, you actually, when you can see the heat, you know you're in for a bad day. And uh, I remember, you know, players would, you know, if you had plastic spikes for some reason or you use them as workout, they would melt, like literally melt. And we had, you know, the, that giant circular kind of, you know, thermometer that had, you know, air pressure and all the humidity and all these things. Thing was like pinned. It was, you know, you know, we're, we're not talking 102. That was the temperature on the field, though. It was like 143 and stuff. I was like, is this legal? Is it actually legal to be out here? So I, I mean, this was problematic. And and I, I look back and I'm wondering if this was also something that was legal. Is they would create buckets of iced ammonia water. That was the way to cool you off. Ammonia water. Ammonia yeah. water. That's yeah, not a product that you see at the grocery store. Ammonia yeah, water. Yeah. So I'm like. Should we be using Mr. Clean on our skulls here? I, I don't know if that's the right move right now. But that was the move. So, uh, I mean, I eventually just shut it down because I just felt my skin would get dry. And it was just strange. But they tried everything to really slow it down. And they were just worried about hydration. So when the heat is like a is like a, another player on the field or, or someone you're trying to beat, you know you're in trouble. But at least the other team had to deal with it too. But that is some serious stuff. It's like standing in a frying pan laced in butter and you know someone going 212 on your temperature man it was serious all right so you played baseball when it when the uh, you were doused in ammonia water and it was 3000 <laughs> degrees and you still retain the same nostalgic affection for vet stadium <laughs> i did i did this is this is still a hollowed grounds of the philadelphia enterprise and dynasty and legacy that I love so much. So I was, you know, I mean, that was the thing about me when I got to the big leagues, you know, sometimes you come up and you're the rookie and you're excited. And then people are kind of complaining. The veterans like, Oh, we have to go to Pittsburgh. It was like a thrill. I I was like, Willie Stargell, I'm going to face, you know, John Candelaria. You know, it just, it just felt so magical. I didn't care what the field looked like. And by the way, in the minor leagues, we played on fields that had broken glass, Pepsi bottles. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Like Veteran Stadium is, is like, you know, the Taj Mahal compared to some yeah. of the places that we played. So I had never spent a lot of energy complaining. I think it was more about, like, if you take Shea Stadium, which wasn't exactly glorious either, if you hit there, which I did, I love the park. Like, I want to play at Shea every day. If I'm hitting 385 here, that's where I want to be. That's what's fun. Turner Field, which was, you know, nice and new and Olympic, was a total nightmare. I was so happy when they destroyed it because I, I lifetime average was like under 200 against Hall of Famers every night. And besides the fact that there was no lights between the foul poles because they were light pollution or whatever, I appreciate that. But I couldn't even see fly balls at 8 o'clock at night because the lights were so bad. So, yes, I'm talking to, to you, Tur- Turner Field. Uh, so, that was perfect it was perfection and it was my childhood wrapped up in a toilet bowl and i'm totally fine with that because that's where we played and 
it was a thrill. And and you know, remember they they went to new turf at the end of my career. They brought in next turf, oh, yeah. which was a lot friendlier on the knees, as you mentioned, and uh, it was it was nicely done. Now the one thing I remember it going badly was. They had to switch from the Eagles because we shared it, right? The Eagles were about to play, and they had to turn it over in like 15 hours, and it didn't really go well. The dirt was so bad that when you slid, you actually stuck, and guys <laughs> were sliding and not reaching the base. So that was one thing. But Veterans Stadium, long-lived vet. First major league hit ever was at Veterans Stadium against Terry Mulholland. So it's full circle for me, man. Wow, and it was 50 years ago this week that that place opened, and you and I spent so much time there. Like When they blew up the vet, a friend of mine actually calculated that I'd spent, I think it was three years of my life in that place when you add up all the hours in between the two of us. Oh, my God, we need to get that time back. <laughs> but when, you know, for a long time, the the scene of the vet imploding was my desktop background on all my computers and the great thing about the the photo you should go find this someplace is the vet is crumbling before your eyes with all these people watching and there in the middle of the frame is the fanatic cheering what a nostalgic moment that was that was tears that should that's like up there with seeing like coco from from disney that that's a that's tears yeah uh imploding Veteran Stadium. Sorry to see it go. Yeah, well, long rust, long live you, the vet. You, you're the one. <laughs> All right, that, that's going to do it for another really fun edition of Starkville. Doug, thanks for joining us for the entire show this week. Uh, it was great having you go the distance. Hopefully, Doug can make it through the whole show next week too. But with or without him, you can find us every Tuesday now in our new home as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Every Monday, it's Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursday, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Friday, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. And Tuesday is our day. And the Athletic Baseball Show is available in its entirety. Absolutely free. Everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go for your podcast entertainment. And of course... You can still find us at The Athletic app. We are ad-free at The Athletic app. Uh, We would love it if you would subscribe. Feel free to give us one of those five-star ratings if you like. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the tremendous writing on our site, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than you'll find in The Athletic. All right, so if you've thought about subscribing, just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show And you can subscribe for just $3.99 a month, Doug. So check us out. Now that baseball season has started up, you will be happy that you did. Also remember, you too can be part of the podcast. We are still inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here on Starkville and prove once again there is almost no baseball trivia we can't totally get wrong. So to do that, you can submit that question via email at starkvilleattheathletic.com or you can do what David Salaturo did today. Send us those questions at Twitter. To find Doug Glanville, you would log on to twitter.com and... Then hit me up at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. 
Or you can find me at Jason ST. That's Jason with a Y, ST. Please remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Joe Buck for the great visit. Thanks to David Salaturo for the trivia question, especially since it's one we got right. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence, everybody, with Grant Brisby. Doug and I will see you next week on Starkville.